Good morning, Grace. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. We've arrived in the last week of our series on the law of Jesus. And as, as you heard me say a number of times, the law of Jesus is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Today, in this last part of this series, we're going to look at the exhortation to love your enemies. When Jesus says to love our neighbors, he doesn't just mean the people like us, but the people that we see as being wrong. This is an important exhortation for you and me because we are living in an age where we have outlined, or the world has outlined for us, who are our enemies. And maybe especially because of our lack of being together in worship, our lack of being able to encourage each other in Christian community, we run the risk of being pushed into this mold the world offers for us of choosing to hate our enemies, or at least to be neglectful towards them. Jesus offers us a better way, a way of love where he says that we are called to love our enemies, even as we love our neighbors. And in so doing, we reflect his character and the character of his father. I was thinking about how to start this sermon and what would be helpful to you and and what would help us see the goodness of the way of life that Jesus offers. Because I, let's admit it, you've heard Jesus' exhortation here before, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And, and you've, you, if you've been around the church at all, or you've read the Gospels at all, you, you've come across those words. And so I was thinking, what would remind my soul and remind your soul that this is a good way to live, that this is worth taking in, that it is in your best interest to be a person who loves your enemy? Because during a time of crisis, during a time of division, during a time of pain, like we're all going through, there's probably a natural tendency to turn in on ourselves and look after ourselves first and be suspicious of our enemies. But what I want you to see in the passage here as we start is that to love our enemies is a godlike love. It's a godlike love. One commentator said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human, and to return good for evil is divine. That's what God calls us to because that's what he models himself. When we talk about loving our enemies, we're not talking about some, just some abstract concept or some uh, impossible standard. We're talking about walking in the footsteps of Jesus himself. So today in our sermon, we're going to have it in two parts. The first part is why Jesus wants us to love our enemies. And the second part is just going to be really practical. How are we to love our enemies? Why do we love our enemies? And how are we to love our enemies? Let's jump into Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
this phrase that Jesus uses throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is usually a, a mechanism where Jesus quotes something from the Old Testament and then ex, ex, expands on it to show the true meaning of why God had wanted his people to know this. So you have heard it said, love your neighbor. That's in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus as well as a couple other places. Um, but then he adds this other phrase, and hate your enemy. Just in case you're a little fuzzy on the Old Testament, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. Jesus is making a point here that um, even though our natural tendency is to not love our neighbor, it is our natural tendency to hate those that are different than us. Jesus says that that is the normal way that we've heard that life is supposed to go. We may not have heard it from the Old Testament, but that's how we hear that life is supposed to go around us. And you've heard that this week, right? You have heard it said that you're supposed to love the people on your side and hate the people who are on the other side. Rather than just saying, these are people made in the image of God who have done things to harm me, you've now labeled them as people who are wrong. You've made this distinction, or the world's made this distinction for you between the people that you should care about and the people you shouldn't care about. And Jesus says, that's not how my followers are supposed to live. Instead, he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be, or you may show that you are, sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants us to see that it is a God-driven choice to love our enemies. It's not driven because we see something good in them, or potential in our enemies, or we see that maybe they could be redeemed, or maybe that uh, they had some life experience that merits our love, though those things may be true, or maybe not, I don't know. But what he wants us to see is that our love for our enemies should come from our identity as sons and daughters of God. This is a really important distinction for you to make as you think about who deserves your love. Because if you think people only deserve your love based on what they've done or based on what they could do in the future, it's going to be based on their activity. But Jesus says, no, no, your love is driven out of who your father is. Not based on the potential you see in your enemies, though, of course, that can, can encourage more in the future. But at the roots, it is, your love for your enemies comes out of your relationship to God. Look at, he says in verse uh, 45, he continues in verse 45 when he says, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. What Jesus is saying is that when we bless our enemies, when we love our enemies, when we pray for our enemies, when we do good to people who have done wickedness to us, we are displaying the same sort of character as God himself. Even if they are in the wrong, even if they are the unjust, we, in our love for them, display what God is like towards them. Because if we don't, Jesus goes on to say in verse 46, there's nothing different about his followers from the world. This is how he describes it in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus uses these two groups that to his original listeners, Gentiles and tax collectors, would have been seen as the most morally corrupt people in their generation. 
And Jesus says, of course they love the people who love them. So if you only love the people who love you, even if those are different people than who the Gentiles and tax, tax collectors love, your, your basis of love is the same. No, if you want to show that you have truly been transformed by the love, love of God, that it's really taken root in your life, you need to love people that there's no human reason for you to love. If God's love has really transformed your heart, it means that you won't act out of the same sort of motivation rubric as someone who has never known God's love. Or, to put a more fine point on it, you should be loving people that there's no reason to love, that it's irrational that you care for. You should pray for people that don't belong on your prayer list. You should bless people who don't deserve what you're giving them. I know that sounds Pollyannish, right? I know that sounds naive. And I imagine for some of you, there's going to be a temptation to listen to this and say, that's just not unrealistic. That's just not how life is. That's not how the real world works. And I think Jesus' response to that would be, exactly, right? That, that's not how the real world works. In that, it's not how the world, apart from the kingdom of God, works. But the question is, what is the real world? Because that's how heaven works. And what's more real than heaven? The gospel should free us from our human desire, maybe even we'd say our sinful nature's desire, to only bless those who bless us. The gospel frees us, and Jesus' love frees us to love people that we don't expect anything from in return. How does that work practically? How does that work in our life? We'll get to that a little bit later in the sermon. But I just want to start with the why. The why is really important. Because if you hear the sermon as just, I'm going to bless my enemies because it's going to make my life better, or it's what makes rational sense to me, then you're going to miss out on Jesus' point, which is that our love for our enemies should be rooted in the way that God has loved us and the way he has treated us, not based on reciprocity that we expect from our enemies around us. In verse 48, Jesus concludes this passage with this high standard that seems, frankly, impossible. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, of course, he's not talking about um, moral perfection in the way that God has moral perfection. In this context, what Jesus is saying is that our love for our enemies should reflect our father in heaven's love for his enemies. And after all, as Paul makes clear in the epistles, we were the enemies of God. We were far from God and he loved us. And so it's our responsibility to be complete or, or perfect or absolute in love for people who don't deserve it, even as God, our Father, loved us when we didn't deserve it. All right, so let's talk about how that actually happens in real life. You know, because some people object to this and they say, this is not possible. No one lives like this. Your life is going to be a wreck if you don't prioritize the people who deserve your affection and your love and your prayer. You have to take care of the people who take care of you. You can't neglect that and go off loving your enemies instead. Okay, that's a good objection. How do we respond to that? First of all, I don't think the Bible ever says that we should love our enemies at the expense of our neighbors. Love doesn't really work like that. It's not like a, a zero-sum thing. But maybe more to the point, when Jesus talks about loving our enemies— He's talking about it as an expression of God's love for us. 
And so when he tells us in verse 48 that our love should be perfect, even as our Father's love is perfect, he's reminding us that our love for others comes out of the well of the love that God offers to us. I understand that, that some people think that the standard is too high. It's too lofty. It's too impossible to love every enemy. And I think this is where we start with what is accessible. And we say, well, we don't have to love. Let's, let's forget about seven billion people here in a moment. Let's start with one. Let's start about loving one person who has wronged you. And let's move from there. Let's build our enemy-loving strength one person at a time. Because I started with why to try to convince you of the burden that we, we all hold together in this. You know, we all live under Jesus' authority and his rule and his reign, whether we've begun to follow him yet or not. So we all live under the same burden that Jesus wants us to love our enemies. And we all live under that burden with joy, knowing that it's because he loved us that we're able to do this. So let's talk about how. How does Jesus say that we're to love our enemies? Um, and why is this something that we would want to live under? Verse 38, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We're jumping back up a little bit earlier in the passage here in verse 38, where Jesus describes how we're to love our enemies. And he begins with this quotation from in the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus, where he tells them, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This quotation is an, an explanation of what's sometimes called the lex talionis, or the law of retribution. And we see this th throughout the Old Testament, the idea that retribution should be limited to what is just, not what is desired. So what do I mean by that? The law of retribution says that when someone harms you, especially in an, a, in an ancient tribal culture, the consequence shouldn't be worse than the original crime. That if you lose something, you should repay in kind, not with an exorbitant fee in response. It was a very kind and just way to construct the society, and it was necessary for a time when often people would nurture personal wounds, and just like today, and respond not with what is just, but what is painful and what is desired. And so instead of taking out an extra pound of flesh, they would say, well, whatever the cost that you bore is a cost that you should repay. This is what's fair. And in the Old Testament law, it was desired that this would work through a justice system rather than a system of personal vendettas. In fact, this is just a quick excursus, but um, this quotation comes from Exodus as well as from Leviticus 24 and, and Deuteronomy 19. And the reason for this quote in context or the explanation of this quote in context in Exodus is imagine, the Exodus, Exodus 21 says, um, if a, if a wife is knocked down when she's pregnant and she's harmed and the baby inside of her dies, the response to that, the husband could, ima you imagine the husband could be enraged that his child has died and he could go off crazy in response and try to personally exact a vendetta against the aggressor's family and try to do horrible things against them. And the law says, no, it should be a, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, which should be, a response should be proportional, not exaggerated. By the way, that's, and this is an aside, this is part of why, as Christians, we say the Bible uh, believes that life exists before it is born, why we would say we're a pro-life people, because passages like that describe that life inside the womb is truly life. 
but that that needs to be exacted through a system of justice, not a system of personal vendettas. And Jesus says, you've heard that, and you know that that's fair, but I say to you, this is in verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So that's interesting. What is Jesus saying, right? Like, in the Old Testament law, there was a system for dealing with pains and hurts and aggressions, and there's a system of justice. But I say to you, instead, turn the other cheek. Where does that come from? Why does Jesus undercutting justice? Well, I'd, I'd want to start with this statement first. Jesus is not undercutting in these love for our enemies a judicial system or the importance of justice as a concept. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus is in, totally in favor of justice and that the oppressed would receive justice. What he is, in this case, against is people taking justice into their own hands in order to defend themselves at, at their own, um, defend their own pride and to defend their own rights against others rather than trusting in God or trusting in the justice of the state. Why is that important for you? For you and me, uh, as one theologian said, it is our duty to work for justice for others, and it is our Christian responsibility to be willing to lay down our rights for our enemies. And if we try to neglect one of the others of those, we end up mis misrepresenting how Jesus represents justice and the goodness of justice. How do we love our enemies? The first example he gives here in verse 39 that we are to not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's an example of loving our enemies, right? That we would not be people who escalate insults and duels. Now, uh, you can imagine in the description here of if someone slaps you on the right cheek, that the person would be backhanding you, right? This is not an act of where your life is on the line. This is an action where your pride is on the line where you've been insulted, where you've been backhanded by someone. It's not where they're actually trying to threaten your safety, but they are insulting your pride. Now, uh, in modern life, we probably don't get backhanded very often. This is probably a pretty easy, uh, pretty easy passage to put into context in a very literal sense. But as we expand it more generally to don't respond to insults with a sense of, I need to defend myself, man, that becomes a much higher standard for all of us. Because when someone says something mean about us online, when somebody gossips about us to a mutual friend, when someone questions our integrity or questions our, um, the way that we treat people or makes a joke at our expense, how quickly does our pride kick in? We don't want to let people speak ill of us. Have you guys seen the movie Hamilton or, or the, the musical Hamilton on Disney? There's a scene towards the end where Hamilton's son uh, hears someone saying something about his father and makes a speech about how his father is, uh, I think of the word is a scoundrel. And uh, Philip Hamilton, the son, says, uh, gosh, I, I wanted to quote this verbatim, but I didn't write it down. Uh, father, you should have heard the things he said about you. I doubt you would have let it go, and I wasn't about to. Right? And what does it lead to in Philip's life? It leads to him losing his life in a duel. Now, a, dueling is illegal today, thank God. Um, but all of us have wasted time and energy and attention by focusing on responding to insults. 
when Jesus says, that's not how my people are to live. After all, your pride is secured in heaven. There's nothing anyone can say about you or say to you or say to another person about you that can trump what God has said about you and his son in Jesus Christ. How free can you live? How free are you called to live knowing that there is no insult that will ever take the place of what Jesus has proclaimed over you by his death on the cross? You can be slapped on the cheek and not need to defend your honor because Jesus has established honor that no one can take away. Secondly, Jesus says in verse 40 that we're to love our enemies in this way. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's Jesus' point here? He's saying there are going to be times in your life where people do unjust things to you, where they try to take advantage of you economically or politically. Those are the two examples he uses there. Where they oppress you in a way that is unfair. It may be legal. Both cases are legal, but they're unfair. And instead of resisting them, know that your eternity is secured by God. These verses have made a lot of liberation theologians uncomfortable over the years, or maybe more than uncomfortable. They've rejected them. Liberation theology is a a strand of, of liberal Christian theology that says that the reason the Bible exists is to liberate the oppressed. Now, there may be some helpful things in liberation theology, but one of the core problems with it is that it seeks to say that they can decide what Jesus meant and didn't mean, and they can even reject parts of the Bible that they don't like. That's a an uncomfortable truth here in verses 40 and 41 that we have to live under. That Jesus is saying that our goal is not always to defend ourselves or to protect ourselves, but to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Now, I will say, though, that while we are called to be people who are willing to entrust ourselves to God rather than to defend ourselves, we are also called as a people of God to defend those who can't defend themselves that we as Christians should be people who are quick to work for justice and to create a just society for the benefit of others, even while individually we're willing to lay down our rights for others. Unfortunately, as Christians, we often get that reversed, right? We, We are quick to defend ourselves when it's in our best interest, but we're not always quick to defend the rights of others. Lastly, Jesus encourages us to love our enemies in verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is Jesus' third example of what it means to be someone who loves their enemies. Is that when we look at a, when someone presents a need that we think is unfair or unlikely to result in our own wealth, we are, should be the people who are quick to say yes, not the people who are quick to say no. This is hard for me, right? Because I, I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to be made the fool. And Jesus says, you don't need to worry about that. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. Isn't it better to be thought the fool or to be taken advantage of in this moment, knowing that your eternity is secured by God, than to be someone who rejects what God, rejects the person made in God's image? I know that these things seem hard to do, practically. As you think about... um, being willing to not respond to insults in kind, or being willing to be the sort of person who takes the loss rather than tries to defend themselves all the time, 
or is willing to be the person who gives to others even if you think they don't deserve it. It's tempting to say, who on earth really lives like that? Bob, do you really live like that? And I would say, I, not all the time. I, I would like to move in that direction. I would like to be that sort of person, but, but I certainly don't live like that all the time. Who actually lives like that, though? <laughs> and the answer is Jesus, right? There's nothing Jesus lays out in this passage that he doesn't do himself. Think about that. I mean that in a very concrete way. Right? In 1 Peter, Jesus' example is made clear. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Right? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continuing entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I think the real core reason that Jesus includes these specific examples of loving his enemies is because he does each of these perfectly. Right? When Jesus is slapped on the cheek by the Roman soldiers, and worse than that, Right? He turns the other cheek rather than responding in self-defense. When Jesus is forced to go a mile carrying his cross, he goes the final mile all the way to Calvary for us. When Jesus is taken advantage of and pushed in ways that are unjust and unfair, he doesn't speak up in his own defense, but he endures it for the sake of you and me coming into the family of God. And when we are asked to borrow from him, when we are asked and beg of him for mercy, he gives generously to all who would call on him. When Jesus talks about loving our enemies, he is describing how he loves you. He's not asking you to do anything he has not done, and he is not asking you to do anything he has not done for you. To love your enemies is to love Jesus back because he loved us when we were his enemies. So what do I want you to do this week? I want you to love someone in a way that doesn't make sense. I want you to love someone that there is no way you would love if you weren't a Christian. Someone who thinks you are wrong, who disdains you, who has made themselves your enemy. Do you have a person in mind? A neighbor? Maybe a family member? Someone in your community or your workplace? Someone that there is no human reason you should respond to with kindness. Someone who it, it seems like they're just trying to make your life miserable. I want you to find someone that there's no human reason to love. And I want you to love them in the way that Jesus has loved you. I'm not asking you to do anything that you have not already been the recipient of. That you have not already benefited from, from Jesus. Is there a way that you're called to stop a cycle of insults? to take the loss rather than continuing to need to have the last word? Or is there a way that you need to follow Jesus' example of humility and be willing to let them win, even if it means you lose? Or do you need to be willing to be generous towards them in a way that you feel like they don't deserve? This is all framed by how Jesus has loved us. Now, Augustine said, give, as Augustine said when commenting on this passage, Jesus says to give to everyone who asks of you, but he does not say give what everyone asks of you. Give to everyone who asks of you, but not what everyone asks of you. You know, in your hard work of being loving, sometimes you will have to give people the things that they do not want, but you know that it is a loving thing to give to them. And so there's a lot of wisdom that you'll need to temper your decisions by. I'm not asking you to become someone who has no sense of self anymore. 
But I am asking you to become someone like Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to follow in his way of love, and to love your enemy as yourself. I'm going to pray for you because like you, I need Jesus' help in this. Without his love for us, none of us can do this. Let's pray. Jesus, we see how you have loved us while we were far off, while we were enemies of God. How you loved us. And we think, God, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I want to do that. God, would you instill your love in us in a deeper way this week? That love would be the natural response to those who harm us because it is our way of life with you. God, we read the words from Romans 12 and it is the prayer of our hearts. God, would you help us to live peaceably with all? God, would you help us not to be people of vengeance, but that we would trust that the wrath of God does all the work that we could never do and never need to do. God, would we be people who would feed our enemy, who would give the thirsty something to drink, and in so doing would overcome evil with good. God, would you help us to be a church like this? In your name we pray. Amen.